0: Our text for today comes uh, from Luke chapter 17, uh, verses 28 through 40. Yep, what he said, chapter 19. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it, just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God, God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: All right. All right. Jesus, in our, in our text for today, is processing into the city of Jerusalem, Jerusalem, along with thousands, literally thousands, of other spiritual pilgrim, pilgrims. People are making their way from their homes all throughout Judea and the Roman world, and they're headed back to the center of their spiritual life, to David's great city, to Zion. This large pilgrimage that we read about in this text happened every single year. The crowd swelled in the city of Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover as a commemoration of God's delivering His people out of of Egypt and out of slavery. It was a celebration where the people retold the story of what God had done. If you've ever been a part of a Passover Seder, you know the way that they tell the story in this visceral way, this way that reminds them in uh, both with their senses and with their words all that God has done. So the Passover was and is a holiday of remembrance, but it was more than simply a festival to commemorate past events. Because remember what the Passover was all about. It was about how Yahweh, powerfully overcame the political authority of Pharaoh and the, orig- and the religious authority of the Egyptian gods and liberated the people from slavery. So while the people were in the business of remembering what God had done, <coughs> excuse me, <clears throat> Passover in their minds was linked to a kind of future liberation or uh, from, the, from the oppression of Roman rule and the coming of this new king. This is a fact we talked about last week. But during the Passover, the people of Israel sang a group of uh, a group of psalms called the Hallel uh, psalms. Hallel is a Hebrew word that just means praise. And in your Bibles, the Hallel psalms are Psalms one thirteen through uh, one eighteen. These psalms all mention or they allude back to the Exodus out of Egypt, and they are written. But if you read them, you'll notice they are written, they allude back to that, but they are written in this forward-pointing way. The Hillel Psalms quake with a kind of promise that God will triumph on behalf of his people. They reiterate his faithfulness and the promise that out of his faithfulness, he will do it again. He'll do what he did before. He'll deliver his people And really, in order to understand what is happening as these pilgrims process into Jerusalem, you have to understand the future orientation of this celebration of Passover. And you have to understand what it was that was on their minds and hearts as they entered the city of Jerusalem. Many of these pilgrims uh, entered the city with these psalms of liberation on their hearts into Jerusalem and into their deliverance. You see, they sang a new, a new Exodus song, songs of freedom, songs like we hear in Psalm 118. And just to give us a taste this morning of what they were singing and what they were thinking and what was on their minds during Palm Sunday, I just want to read to you Psalm 118 in its entirety. So, here's what... Here's what the New International Version of Psalm 118 sounds like, and you can kind of put yourself in the frame of mind that these pilgrims were in on Palm Sunday. So it says, Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His love endures forever. Let Israel say, His love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, His love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, His love endures forever. When hard-pressed, t- when, when hard I cried to the Lord. He brought me into a spacious place. The Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? The Lord is with me. He is my helper. I look in triumph on my enemies. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in humans. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All the nations surround me, but in the name of the Lord, I cut them down. They surround me on every side, but in the name of the Lord, I cut them down. They swarmed around me like bees, but they were consumed as quickly as burnt thorns in the name of the Lord. I cut them down. I was pushed back, pushed back and about to fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. Shouts of joy and victory resound in the tents of the righteous, the Lord's righteous hand Uh, The Lord's righteous hand has done mighty things. The Lord's right hand is lifted high. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. I will not die but live and will proclaim what the Lord has done. The Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open for me the gates of the righteous, and I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. Remember, they were marching down to the gates of the city of Jerusalem as they sang this. <coughs> I will give thanks for you answered me. You, gave, uh, you have become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and, in his, and, it, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done this very day, let us rejoice today and be glad. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord from the house of the, uh, for the from the house of the Lord. We bless you. The Lord is God, and He has made His light shine on us. With bows in hand, just. Uh, Join in the festal procession, up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will praise you. You are my God, and I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Do you feel the way that that psalm is both a a past tense and a present tense and a future tense. This, these psalms, like I said, quake with a kind of anticipation. And when we pick up the story of the triumphal entry in Luke's gospel, Jesus entering the city from the east, down from the Mount of Olives and towards the temple, the gate that was closest to the temple. And so I'm sure in that context, no one really knew what was happening right at first. Jesus and his disciples were just part of the multitude, they were just part of the crowd headed to Jerusalem for the Passover, making their way to what they believed to be the spiritual center of the world. But as he rides the foal of a donkey, not even a full-grown donkey, mind you, something begins to happen. Luke tells us that on the road, the disciples begin to kind of kick up a scene as Jesus is entering the city. They start rejoicing and praising God in loud voices. Imagine with me just for a second, you are a pilgrim, you're on your way to the city, and behind you, you hear a ruckus start. A group of mostly poor Galilean Jews begin hooping and hollering and singing a familiar song. And this is what Luke tells us they began to sing in verse 38. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Does it sound familiar? It's Psalm one eighteen twenty six, verse 26. Now, if you were with us last week, this is the exact same verse in the exact same psalm that John the Baptist pulls from to ask Jesus, Are you the coming one? Are you the king? Are you ha-erkemenos? Uh, Which, I don't know why I put that in there. Anyways... Only this time, Luke tells us that now Jesus' disciples, as Jesus is riding a donkey down from the Mount of Olives through the eastern gate of the city and directly to the temple, begin to sing this same song again. They begin to proclaim this message. And if you are in the crowd and you hear this, you know what it means. Or at least you know it means something, doesn't it? And people begin to lay their cloaks on the ground in front of the foal of this donkey that Jesus is riding on. And the other gospel writers kind of fill in the scene for us. They tell us that people begin to pull palm branches, where this Sunday gets its name, off of the trees from around the path down to the city of Jerusalem. And they begin to wave them, and they begin to sing along. And again, this means something, doesn't it? It's not a neutral activity. You know what it means? You read Psalm 118. It means that the king is coming. This is a song of enthronement. It's a song of coronation. It's a song of victory over your enemies. <coughs> you see, all of the people and all of the disciples are singing this song because they believe Jesus is head to Jerusalem, heading to Jerusalem, not just to celebrate the Passover. That's not his only purpose, but to be crowned king, to inaugurate liberation, the everlasting kingdom of both peace and glory that God, through the prophets and through the Psalms, has been promising his people all, of the, all along. God, as it turns out, is faithful and steadfast. His love endures forever, and he will not leave his people alone. He will not surrender them or abandon them to foreign rule. He will be a God of delivering power in the world. And this is the the motion and the energy of this event we call the triumphal entry. I ran across a painting this week, and I believe we have it up on the screen for you. This is a painting by 19th century painter James Tissett, I think is his name. I don't know if that's exactly how you pronounce it, but we're going with it this morning. Uh, there's something about the both the movement around Jesus in this painting and also the stillness of Jesus that speaks to me. You see you see in this painting that Jesus is being lauded as, as a king. This is actually a close-up picture of, of the actual painting that I believe is in New York somewhere. But uh, if you were to see the full relief of this painting down on the lower third, in front of Jesus are some singers, and they're clearly singing a psalm as they process into the city of Jerusalem. And you see kind of around Jesus the joy, right? But in the center of the photo, Jesus is not particularly joyous, is he? He's kind of quiet. He's still. If you can see it, it, it in his eyes, there is what origin, at first, I think, kind of looked to me like a kind of sadness But as I looked at the painting for a little longer, I realized it wasn't sadness. It was a kind of determination, a quiet confidence, a resolve. And we see that very resolve, I think, in verse 40 of our text for today. When the Pharisees run up to Jesus as this whole hoopla is happening on the road into the city, and you know what? They they tell Jesus, Tell your disciples to be quiet. This is too much. We can't be about this business. We can't be getting this crowd riled up. These claims are exaggerated, right? You are just a guy riding a donkey. You're not the coming one. You're not the king. You're not David's son. This, your, your, your followers, I'm sure this, is, I'm just filling in blanks here. Your followers are poor. You're a homeless preacher. You have no army, right? Jesus. You might have done some miracles. I heard you can, you've done miracles, but we've seen miracles before, right? Jesus, tell your disciples to be quiet. Otherwise, we are all going to get in trouble here. And it doesn't seem like you can handle the type of trouble that will be coming down. Do you really want to draw the attention of the Romans? We most certainly don't want to draw the attention of the Romans, and we definitely don't want to blaspheme God. So Jesus, tell your disciples to be quiet. And what does Jesus say? I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones cry out. The stones will cry out. And Jesus, with that kind of steely resolve, continues on his mission. Here's another reason I think that Jesus is resolute in this story and in this painting. You can throw that painting back up. I think he knows where he's going. I think Jesus knows the twist in the story. I think Jesus recognizes the irony of what is occurring based on what is going to happen to him in just a series of days. I think we see the twist in the story in Jesus' eyes in this painting. Jesus knows that while he is headed to Jerusalem, and he is headed to be crowned or coronated, it is not going to look like anyone in the crowd, or really anyone at all, thinks it's going to look. Jesus' coronation will not occur in a palace or on a throne. It will occur on a cross. The place of Jesus' coronation will be Golgotha, the place of the skull. And as he leads this procession of pilgrims, they're singing coronation songs, and he rebukes Pharisees who try to stop them from doing this. Jesus knows that where he, where he is leading this group of people is not to glorious victory, at least not in the way that they are thinking about glorious victory. Rather, he's leading them to Calvary. And here is the question, and I think this is the central question of Palm Sunday, and I I really do think it's the central question that Luke, the author of this particular gospel, is asking us, the reader of of this text. I think he's asking, are you willing to follow Jesus where he is going? Maybe a better question to ask is, can you follow Jesus where he is going? You see, none of the people in this story are able to follow Jesus to the cross, not really a single one of them. Not the disciples who are singing praises to him from Psalm 118. Definitely not the Pharisees. The power players in the story of of Holy Week just want to see Jesus kind of dealt with and shoveled off to the side. But we, as the readers of this story, are invited into it, I think. To see past all the spectacle and to see where Jesus is headed and to find in that place the way that God won our freedom, to see the cross not as a defeat but as a way to freedom, to liberation, to new exodus. But it's hard to see, isn't it? It turns out to be really, really hard to see. And while it's difficult to see where Jesus is headed, I think it's even harder to follow him there. It's even harder to live it out. The question Luke might be asking is, can you follow Jesus where He is going, but it turns out that the answer to that question is it's very, very difficult to follow Jesus where He's going, isn't it? You know, there's this thing that that happens when we read stories from the past where we kind of judge the mistakes of people who came before us, right? Anybody familiar with this? When, when, When we place ourselves in historical stories, we like to say, oh, I wouldn't have gone along with that, right? I would have been smarter than those people. Those people didn't get it. I would have been on top of it, right? We kind of build ourselves up as the heroes in our own minds. It's a natural thing that we do. You know, one example of this, I think, is from uh, the civil rights movement in the 60s. Uh, specifically on MLK Day, when it comes around every year, I think about this when a lot of people are posting quotes from MLK on their Facebook and Instagram, it it just kind of is an idea that always comes back to me. We see ourselves as the hero in the story, right? And when we look back on things like the civil rights movement or the life of MLK, we kind of put ourselves in the position and said we would be on his side. But the truth is that a Harris poll taken in 1968 found that the week that King was assassinated, his public disapproval rating was 75%. The vast majority of white Americans did not like that man and what he stood for one bit. Fast forward to today, and the majority of Americans probably believe he was a great man and did great things, and he was, and he did. But I don't think we should be too quick to pat ourselves on the back. And I think what we need to do is to look back at history with humility and allow ourselves to learn from that not to self-aggrandize, but to learn in such a way as to allow ourselves to not make the mistakes that were made in the past so that they can teach us about ourselves. You know, I I believe it was C.S. Lewis that said that uh, learning history frees us from the tyranny of the present, right? And I think a similar thing is happening in this story. When we read the story of the triumphal entry, And when we feel instinctively that question that Luke is asking us from this text, are you able to follow Jesus where he is going? We go, yeah, definitely. I definitely follow Jesus where he is going. I would have seen it, right? I would have understood. I would not have praised Jesus on Sunday and cried, crucify him a few days later. Definitely not me, right? I wouldn't have been like those disciples who abandoned Jesus in his moment of need. Definitely would have stuck with him. When he called me to the to the garden and to hold watch and pray with him, I definitely wouldn't have fallen asleep, right? Let's but let's be honest and let's read this story with a bit of humanity or humility. You would have. And so would I have. In fact, I think the point of the story is not just that we would have abandoned Jesus. I think the point of this story is that we all do abandon Jesus. Each and every one of us. Let's get real for a minute. We turn our back on Jesus. We go our own way. We do that all the time, don't we? We are the crowd on Palm Sunday. That's who we are. We do deny him with both our words and our actions. The scriptures tell us that we have all sinned and gone astray. We have all attempted to use Jesus for our own ends and purposes. We have all proclaimed praise with our mouth, but denied him when the rubber of our lives met the road. But Jesus goes to the cross nonetheless, Each, for each and every one of us. Throw that picture back up, if you could, for one second, that painting. No one in that picture expected what was about to happen and virtually no one followed him where he was going. And we are all faulty and broken just like them. You see, that the triumphal entry story shows us that none of us can follow Jesus to the cross. And that's good news. Because it shows us that God's grace flows towards us, and Jesus' heart is still resolute to save us even when we fall so desperately short of the standard that we deny him with both our words and our actions altogether. We are the crowd. We are the broken. We are the unfaithful. We are the faulty. We are the sinful. And Christ is still crowned king on Good Friday and resurrected on Easter Sunday all the same. Because that was and is exactly the kind of king that we need. It's exactly the kind of king that we are in need of. God is not faithful to you because you are faithful to him. We we read about it in Psalm 118. That's not grace. That's a legal contract. (coughs) Jesus is faithful to go to the cross precisely because, for the very reason because, we are unfaithful to him. Paul will go on to sum this up in his letters to the churches when he says that Christ died for us when we were Christ's out-and-out enemies. And this story is, I think, placed squarely at the beginning of Holy Week to remind us of that fact. Excuse me. It's to remind us that we are just like them, but that God and his love are so much bigger and more faithful than our ability to be faithful to him. Joss, if you could come up. I'm going to conclude now because I don't want to subject you to any more pastoral coughing. How's that sound? But don't clap for that. Jeez. I want to conclude today by reading this, by circling back to this passage in Psalm 118. The first four lines of the psalm are a series of uh, two couplets, actually, but are a series of four verses that affirm God's faithfulness, His loving kindness, His faithfulness to us or to God's people. And all four of these lines do not place any... uh, any expectation on the faithfulness of God on our part. God is faithful to us when we cannot be faithful to him, when we fall desperately short. This is the message of the gospel, right? That God fills in the gaps of our lives. And it's no surprise to me that Psalm 118 begins with this uh, this reminder of God's faithfulness. So I'm just going to read the first four verses one more time. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Let Israel say, his love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his love endures forever. Jesus exemplifies the loving endurance of God towards his people. When despite our unfaithfulness, he goes to the cross Luke, again, in his gospel, he uses this phrase beginning in Luke 9, I believe. He says that Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. Jesus sets his face resolutely towards a path to the cross that he knows he needs to go to and that he knows we need. Jesus knows that you need him. The only question is, do we know that we need him? Jesus has accomplished the work of our redemption on the cross. He has made grace fully and utterly available to us. The only question is, do I recognize the fact that I am the crowd, that I am the sinful, that I am the broken, but that it's his grace that opens up vistas of possibility in my life? The message of Palm Sunday is a message of grace. The message of Good Friday is a message of grace. The message of Easter is a message of grace. But it all starts with this acknowledgement that I am in need. And Jesus has filled in the place of that need. And as we go uh, through this journey of Holy Week over the next number of days, I think the thing that is most important for us to realize, and the reason we even have a Good Friday service on, on Sunday, is to recognize our need. To be given the gift of humility by the person of God, to realize our need for Jesus, and to cast ourselves one more time at the feet of a God who did something for us that we do not deserve. And so this morning, my hope and my heart is just that we would turn ourselves, that we would posture ourselves this week back towards the person of God in such a way as that we could acknowledge our need for him. And we could kind of step into the mystery, the divine mystery of the cross. That Christ has died, and Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. And so this morning, would you stand with me? And I just kind of want to publicly—I want us to confess our need. So wherever you are, and maybe you came into the place going like, "Don't, definitely don't need anything from God." You're wrong. Um, but my heart, and my hope, is that the the posture of one who needs what Jesus provides. Is not about weakness. It's not about um, it's not about acknowledging that you are just a no no down, no good low down person and that you'll never amount to anything or anything like that. It's just to acknowledge that Jesus has filled up the world, the world's need, in His body, in His going to the cross, and that as we look to Him, we can acknowledge that. And we can allow the life of God to then fill our hearts because of what he did on our behalf. And so just in a posture of prayer this morning, if you would bow your heads and close your eyes. And just where you are in the quietness of your heart, would you just say this to the Lord? Lord, I need you. Lord, I need you. Let's say that together this morning. Just, Lord, I need you. Lord, I need you. Jesus, we love you. And we acknowledge this morning that every good gift comes from your hand. And that we, like the crowd, so often go astray. We are not good enough. We are not strong enough. Life on our own terms is not the way we were called to live this life. And so we cast ourselves upon you one more time this morning. And we acknowledge our need. We acknowledge, again, that we are sinful. And we turn towards you. And we acknowledge, God, that it's because of your steadfast love, your ever-enduring love, that you went to the cross on our behalf and you died for us, that you filled up in your body all of the ways in which we are broken and in which we have failed, and you crucified them in that place. And because of that, we can live. And so Jesus, this morning, would you give us, us eyes to see the, that we may see you and know you? Would you give us eyes to see the ways in which you're working in our lives? And, and through all of it, through Good Friday and through Holy Week, God, would we remember the cross, what you did on our behalf? The fact that you paid the price that none of us could pay, that you stood for us when we could not stand for ourselves, Jesus, would you uh, would you put on our hearts the beauty of the cross, and would we be awed by it this week? Put us in the posture, put us in that humble posture of a disciple, and help us to see who you are. And we pray that today. In the name of our King, King Jesus. Amen, and amen, and amen. Well, it's good to have you in church today. It was a good day. It was a good day. So, um, before you get away, uh, if you brought a gift, you could place it in the box on your way out. Um, and we hope to see you next week. You know. Uh, Easter is one of those days where uh, hopefully most most of us are here. So here's the deal. Uh, if you would come a few minutes early and find a seat that would be helpful for us uh, just to make sure everybody has a place uh, and we can all be together next Easter to, or on Easter Sunday to celebrate the resurrection and if you're free Friday night uh, on Friday evening uh, we'll have some time to meditate on the cross and receive communion together so we hope to see you for a Good Friday as well. All right. All right. Go today in the grace and in the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.